Our sermon text this morning is Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn, turn there. Uh, and if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. Give ear to the word of God. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. Since the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, we are... Continuing our study in the book of Malachi, and here we find, you know, it's really the message of the whole book, but here you basically find the actual word being used. God is graciously and mercifully calling his people to repent. That's what repentance really is. He tells them in verse 7, what? Return to me and I will what? You return to me and I will return to you. That that word uh, in the Hebrew for return, it's, it, it means to turn or change or repent. It's, a, it's a, a command and a, an invitation to turn around. And they had been, what he tells us there in, 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 the, in the passage in verse 7, they had been wandering away from the Lord. They had turned aside from his statutes for quite some time. And as we saw uh, a couple weeks ago, he tells them, it's only because I, the Lord, he says, do not change that you, uh, o, o children of Jacob, were not consumed. In other words, if God, if God were a God who changed, they would have been gone a long time ago. It's only because God does not change and is faithful to his promises and his covenant and to his people that they had not been consumed or, or, or done away with. You know, if you consider that the book of Malachi, uh, it's not just the end of, our, of, our, of the Old Testament in our English translations, but, you know, it's the last word from God before the coming of Christ, which was promised so long ago, even as we looked at in Isaiah 7. Uh, and the very last word from God in the Old Testament is basically, uh, you know, four-chapter book, as short as it is, it's a call to his people to repent. The, the preparing of the way of the Lord, of the Messiah, uh, really consisted in many ways of calling the people to repentance. So I think it seems appropriate for us, as we're looking at this book in the weeks coming uh, leading up to Christmas, I think it's appropriate for us to, to, to look at this. May this passage, I hope, prepare us or help us to prepare as we get ready to celebrate the birth of Christ, our Savior. Uh, perhaps we, too, might need to heed the same message that the people in Malachi's day needed to, to hear. And that's a call to humble repentance and faith in Christ. Um, we looked at, I think, two Sundays ago, verse 6, where it says... God says to his people, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And we saw that you know, the, the complaints, the grumblings of the people of Israel that, that God addresses there in this book, um, they were basically implying that God had changed, right? That's why God answers the way he does. I don't change. They, they were implying and, and that God had changed. And why was that? What was, what was happening that led them to mistakenly think that God had somehow, somehow changed. You know, God, God was not uh, blessing them, blessing the nation of Israel the way that they thought he should have. 
the way he used to do in years and generations past. And so what, what was their diagnosis of the problem? They thought the problem was with God and not with themselves. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to think about, but, you know, it's, it's very easy to put this under glass, right? A book like Malachi and so many, you know, 20, what, almost 2,500 years ago, 2,400 years ago from our time. And look at it under glass as if it's, you know, we're in a museum and say, oh, those silly people in Israel, how could they possibly think that way? But, you know, every time we grumble against God, we, we're thinking the same way they were. I've grumbled against God, maybe not in so many words, but you probably have too. Every time we complain against God's good providence, we're saying that we know better and we deserve what? We think we deserve better. And in that way, we're not so much different from them. They thought that God was the problem and not themselves. They thought that God was not being fair in his judgments. Remember verse 17 of chapter 2, God kind of says what they were thinking and saying. He says they were saying, where is the God of justice or where is the God of judgment? He was, he was passing judgments, but they didn't like them. They didn't think they were fair or, or just. And so the Lord tells them and us, emphatically, thankfully, that he does not change. And it's only because he doesn't change that they weren't consumed or destroyed. It was only because of God's unchanging, steadfast love that continues forever. It's only because of God's faithfulness to his promises, his covenant, and his people, and only because of his patience with his covenant people that they had not been destroyed on account of their iniquity a long time ago. If it was just up to to their own deserts, they would have been gone a long time ago. In fact, look at verse 7. God reminds them, he says, From the days of your fathers, we don't know how many generations he's talking about, but it it was more than one. From the days of your fathers, you have what? Turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And then he says, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say... How shall we return? So from the days of their fathers, we, we, you, know, you assume at least further back than the uh, Babylonian captivity, they had been turning aside from God's statutes and had failed to keep them. Uh, this had been going on for quite some time. Remember Malachi, if you're kind of keeping track on the scorecard at home, so to speak, Malachi is one of the, what they call the post-exilic prophets. Now, some of the prophets were prophesying before the Babylonian captivity, warning against it, like hey, if you don't repent, This is what's going to happen. And they didn't repent, and that's what happened. And for 70 years, they were in Babylon. Their their homeland was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. 70 years. I mean, that's a lifetime. That's a couple generations' time, right? But God graciously allowed them to come back. He actually had King, I believe it was King Cyrus, send them back and even provide for the temple to be rebuilt. I mean, they should, have been, they should have been thrilled. They should have been amazed at God's kindness in doing that. Probably the number one prayer, we don't know, but probably the number one prayer they prayed while they were in Babylon was, we just want to go home. We just want to go back to the way it was and go home and have the good old days and have the temple and have the temple sacrifices and all these things and enjoy the blessing of God on his people. And so God grants it, and what happens? They're just still grumbling. They're still complaining Uh, about God, uh, about his providence toward them. And so, you know, you would think that they would have changed. You think you would have thought they would have turned back because of God's mercies 
uh, to his ways. And so despite God's mercy and kindness and bringing them back to their homeland and giving them uh, the ability to rebuild the temple and reinstitute their worship in the temple with the sacrifices, something they hadn't had for 70 plus years. We don't know how long it took to rebuild the temple. It wasn't a quick project. Most of them, despite all that, most of them had failed to repent and were once again grumbling against the Lord rather than taking their own responsibility and repenting. In other words, they were just like their fathers. The sins of the fathers had been visited upon their children and grandchildren, as Exodus 20, verse 5 says. Now, the first thing to look at in our text is God's gracious call to repentance, and that's really what it is. That's really an act of God's grace that he would do such a thing. He says, return to me, verse 7, and I will return to you. Ironically, they thought that God had changed, and in some ways the real problem was that they hadn't. The ones who needed to change wasn't God, it was them. They were still committing the same sins in some ways that their fathers had committed generations prior, and the same sins, we have to think, that led to the Babylonian exile in the first place. That's what he says, just since the days of your fathers. You've departed, you've turned away from my statutes. He says they turned aside from God's statutes and had not kept them. Now the word, the word there for statutes in the Hebrew comes from a Hebrew word that means to inscribe or write in stone. What does that remind you of? God's law. Remember God's law was written in stone on tablets of stone in Exodus chapter 24 verse 12. Same, same idea is implied in the word. And what does it mean about not only does God not change, what does it say about his word, about his statutes and commandments? They don't change either. God's law does not change as it is a reflection of God's character and God's purposes. So his, he doesn't change, his word doesn't change, but what, what did the people do? They turned aside from God's way, from God's law and his statutes. And so God graciously calls them to repent to turn from that sin and turn back to him. Now, sin, what is sin? You could quote question 14 in the catechism. What is it? Any, any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God? And that's all very well and good. It's a good definition. But you could also define sin by just something in some way of us turning away from God and his ways. Turning away, it's a turning away from God and his commandments. And so what is repentance? In many ways, it's the, it's the about face of that. And back in the military, uh, don't ask me why, but in my Navy days in boot camp, they spent a lot of time in those eight weeks teaching us sailors how to march. And it's harder than it looks to keep your feet going in the exact step of the guys in front of you. If you had, We had 80 people in our company, and 80 people had to march as one person. And if one guy turned the wrong way and you were doing a rifle drill, you took a rifle to the face. You know, or somebody, you spend an hour shining your shoes and the guy behind you steps wrong and he scuffs your shoe all up and you're, you know, get all mad. Like, why they taught Navy guys to march, don't ask me, right? But an about face is you're going this way and you turn on, a, on your heel and you go the opposite direction. That's, that's a picture of repentance. Repentance is turning back to God. Turning away from sin and turning back to God. Now, Paul... Paul describes this kind of a thing uh, in, in describing the conversion of the believers in the city of Thessalonica in the, in the same kind of language. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10, he says this. He says, for they, they themselves report 
uh, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And there was other people, other believers, had heard about the amazing uh, conversion by God's grace of many people in Thessalonica. He says, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their conversion involved repenting of idolatry by, by necessity. You can't serve God in idols, right? He says, they, they reported how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's repentance unto life. They were serving idols, and when the gospel came, they heard the gospel, the grace of God, and the Holy Spirit gave them new life and faith and repentance. They turned from idolatry and turned back to God. The Shorter Catechism gives us a definition of repentance unto life, and it says this. What is repentance unto life? He's talking about conversion. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. In other words, it's given by God. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, here it is, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. In other words, you hear the gospel, you hear the presentation of God's word, you're convicted of your sin, right? A true sense of sin and a grasp of the mercy that is to be had in Christ. And because of that, with grief and hatred of our sin, we turn from it unto God by faith and, and endeavor after new obedience. The call, the call to repentance in the gospel is a vital aspect of any true gospel preaching. And I think in many ways it seems almost entirely absent in much of what passes for gospel preaching today. Can anybody be saved without repenting of their sins? One word answer to that question. No. Does the Bible teach that you can be saved without repenting of your sin? No, it does not. The Confession of Faith says as much as well. It says, uh, Confession of Faith 15.1 says, Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof, here it is, is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. Faith and repentance go together. You're not saved by repentance, but you're not saved without it. You're saved by grace through faith. The same chapter in the confession says this, although repentance be not, is not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon of it, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. That's strong words, but I believe it's biblical. I believe that's what the Bible clearly teaches. So you, you aren't saved by repenting. You don't earn God's grace by repenting. God doesn't say, oh, okay, you repented, and because you repented, that makes you okay. But if you believe in Christ, you will repent. If you don't repent, you don't really understand the gospel at all. You can't earn forgiveness by repentance. We aren't saved by works, but if we are truly repentant, for our sins, if we're not, we haven't really understood the gospel at all. If we're not, really, we really haven't understood our need for Christ or believed upon him for salvation. And so I asked this morning, have you repented of your sins and believed on Christ for salvation? If not, turn back to God. That's what repentance really is, turning from sin, 
Turning to God by faith in Christ. Turn to Christ by faith and live. Well, the second thing that we look at in our text is not just the God's call to repentance, but the resistance to repentance. The resistance to repentance. It kind of should jump off the page at us in some ways, but it's really something that you see all through the book of Malachi. You know, God graciously calls his people to return to him and tells them in a manner of speaking, if you return to me, I'll return to you uh, in blessing them once again, as he's done in the former days. But look at the hardness of heart displayed by the people in Malachi's day. It should, it should be jarring when you read this on the page. It says, verses 7 to 8, it says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Here it is. But you say, what? How? And a more literal way of putting it is, in what way shall we return? What are you, in other words, what are you talking about? What do you mean return to me, God? That's really what they're saying. How? In what way are we in need of repentance? Remember what Jesus himself said when he, when he was preaching in the Gospels? He didn't come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are, who are sick. They, they claimed that they didn't know what God was talking about. They're, they're essentially talking back to God. If you're a parent, maybe you've ever had a child talk back, and maybe if you're like me, you get a little frustrated by that. This is even worse than that. They're talking back to God. God confronts them with their sins, and twice in these two verses, they're basically claiming innocence. Innocence and or ignorance. What do we need to repent of? It's really saying there's nothing wrong on our end. The problem is with you, God. That's really what they're, they're saying. And this is a repeated theme. It's a repeated refrain, the wording, throughout the short book of Malachi. God, you know, all through the book, God will say, you've done this. Or, you, you know, you, you've despised my name. You've despised my table. Uh, and what do they say? They say, he says, you will say to me then, how have we done such and such? But how? What have we done, God, that you could possibly be uh, angry about? The hardness of heart in this text is, is on full display, and it should, be, it should be kind of frightening to us if we think about it. The resistance to God's call to repentance, I think, should be kind of jarring. It should be something that gets our attention. After all, uh, the people of Israel in Malachi's day, you know, we, We're in chapter 3. We're over halfway through the book. We've already seen God telling them a number of ways that they had sinned against him. They'd sinned against him in their worship, in the offerings that they offered to God that were not uh, right offerings. They had sinned, the men there in Israel had sinned uh, in divorcing their wives and marrying heathen women and all kinds of pretty big sins. They should have had no problem understanding what was going on. And yet they thought they were righteous. They had some, in other words, they had some pretty obvious sins. These weren't subtle sins that were hard to detect, and yet they thought they were righteous, and that God was somehow in the wrong for withholding his blessings from them. Why is that? Well, a number of reasons, hardness of heart being the main one, but they do what I think we often do, right? We aren't really that different just because we have microwaves and smartphones and airplanes and Whatever we think we are, but we're not. We're just more more efficient at sinning, maybe. 
right? Um, what, what did they do? They do what we do. We compare ourselves. And, you know, I, I used to call this the Oprah Winfrey factor, but whatever show where they bring the train wreck out and everybody, oh, you know, and say, oh, well, I'm not like so-and-so. You know, it's like the Pharisee. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this publican over here. You know, uh, I tie the, you know, whatever, whatever he says. And the publican, what does he say? He wouldn't even look up, but beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, a sinner, right? But we, we do that. We say, well, we, we take the measuring stick out and we say, well, I'm more righteous than so-and-so. I mean, they don't even go to church. You know, we, we find some way to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, uh, and we don't really search our hearts. So that's what they were doing as well. They were comparing themselves to the heathen around them and saying, well, they seem to be doing quite well. What's up? Why is God not blessing us? So over 400 years later at the the, law, the coming of Christ, after all those years, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, think about when you read the Gospels, the beginnings of the Gospels, what condition do you find the people of Israel in in Christ's day? The same condition that you read of in the book of Malachi, isn't it? That's not an accident. The same condition, much the same hardness of heart that was found among them in Malachi's day. The Gospel of Luke chapter 11, verses 47 to 48. Jesus here is rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes. And what does he say? It says this. Jesus, this is Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent or agree with the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. The word tomb there probably has the idea of a monument, right? He's saying, your fathers couldn't kill these guys fast enough. And yet, what do you do? Oh, we, we reverence these prophets that our fathers killed. We build these, temp, these uh, tombs or monuments to them. Stephen, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, goes even further. He says, this is uh, Stephen preaching in, in Acts 7, verses 51 to 53. He's preaching to the crowd. He gives this amazing historical survey of, of God's dealings in the Old Testament up to the time of Christ. He says, you stiff-necked people. He's preaching a sermon. Imagine this. We have an evangelistic event, and we have a sermon out some, somewhere, a Christmas event, and that's, that's the first words out of the pastor's mouth. Imagine how that would go. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. They were circumcised. He's preaching to the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. But he says, yeah, you were outwardly circumcised, but not the right way, not, not in your heart. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Here it is. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. He could have said that in Malachi's day much of it, at least the heart of it. You know, it's no accident that both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ himself, when they came onto the scene in the gospel, what was their message? Repent. John the Baptist had a baptism of repentance, and Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. Both of them preached messages 
of repentance. No one likes that message. No, you, you want to fill a church? Don't preach that. No one enjoys hearing a call to repent. I think it sounds kind of harsh to our ears, doesn't it? It kind of is jarring in some ways. It, and why is that? Because it talks about sin. The minute you, saw, you talk about repentance, you're speaking about sin. Sins against God that need to be repented of. And, but it really is an act of grace and kindness on God's part when he sends the, his prophets and now his word to call us to repent. It's an invitation. Think about Malachi's context here. Despite years and years and years of sin and hardness of heart, God is still inviting them to repent and be reconciled to him. He's still inviting them to be restored to favor with him. After all that, you know, it's a good thing we aren't God because we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't wait that long to just start over and destroy the ones that, were repent, that weren't repenting. God is patient, not wanting anybody uh, to perish, but all to come to repentance, Peter says. Should, and I, I would just say, should we not take this to heart ourselves? You know, everything in the Old Testament that we read of in these histories and the prophets, what does Paul say twice? It's written for our benefit. It's written for our instruction, including this. Are, we, are you and I any less prone at times to sin and hardness of heart? Are we any less tempted to sin and hardness of heart? The book of Hebrews uh, says this. It says Hebrews three twelve to 13. The writer says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're not any different from them. And we need to take the same lesson to heart. We need to be exhorted every day while it is called today, as he says, that none of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Solomon, we looked at this a few weeks ago, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? What's, what's the implication? We have a hard time understanding not just somebody else's heart, which we have no way of knowing. We have a hard time understanding our own hearts. We really do. And what does it say in the next verse? I, the Lord, test the heart. God knows the heart. We don't. And one of the psalmists says in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be a prayer that's on our lips as well. It's written in the Psalms that we might sing it and pray it uh, and read it. May we prepare for Christmas this year, I hope, by asking the Lord to do what that psalmist says, to search our hearts, to search us and know our hearts, which we are uh, a very difficult uh, time for us to know in ourselves. May God in his mercy... And kindness revealed to us any grievous ways that might be in us, that we might uh, be granted repentance as well and might know his blessings once again, uh, both as, as individuals as well as a church and as a nation. You know, it, this, this is a national rebuke in Malachi, but it has, it has application for individuals as well as the nation. You know, when you, when you read the Bible, entire nations are called to repentance. Our nation needs repentance. As a whole, 
People, individuals are called to repentance. In the book of Revelation, churches are called to repent. In those letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, if you repent not, what's going to happen? Your candlestick is removed. You know, that's a way of saying that the church might be there physically, but it'll be a church in name only. Jesus won't be there anymore. That happens to churches who don't repent. And I hate to say it, but that's happened, uh, in, I want to say, more often than not. How many churches that started off well are still holding to God's word faithfully and proclaiming the gospel and following him in all that we do? Um, that is something for us all to be uh, thinking about. Well, in conclusion, take notice of not just the call to repentance, not just our own natural resistance to repentance, but look at the blessings of repentance that God promises. That, that Both the conversion of the unbeliever as well as the restoration of the backward the wayward or backsliding believer, God promises blessings for repentance. Verse 7, he says, return to me and what? You return to me and I will return to you. Now, this isn't, this isn't talking about, uh, this is not talking about who is uh, and isn't the one taking the initiative. God is not saying, meet me halfway. God is not saying, you know, if you, if you take the initiative, then I'll respond, uh, you know, that I'm just waiting around with my hands tied behind my back. Who takes the initiative in salvation in every single instance? Is it the sinner or God? It's God. On, in the way we experience it, it may feel like we're the ones taking the initiative, but we really, we really aren't. How, does, how do we know that? God is sending his word. Who sends the gospel out? God does. Who determines who hears the gospel? God does. God, in his word, calls us to repent. And sometimes uh, we don't even realize our hearts have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember David? After sitting with Bathsheba, he sends Nathan the prophet who tells him that story about the, the rich man and the poor man. And the rich man had so many flocks and herds, he didn't know how to count them all. And the, the poor man had one little ewe lamb, and it, it was like a pet, and it ate at his table. You know, it was his one little thing, his little pride and joy. Uh, and long story short, the rich man has the poor man's lamb you know, killed and served up for his friends. David's hearing the story the whole time, and he says, you know, I want him dead. You know, the man who's done this shall surely die. And then Nathan's like, I'm talking about you. You know, you're the man. The wrong way of saying you're the man, right? Um, you know, we don't realize sometimes that our hearts have been hardened by sin and unbelief. Those who are dead in sin, hearing the gospel for the first time, when God calls them in his grace uh, to, to, to faith and repentance, how do they come to faith in Christ? God has to grant it to them. God has to grant repentance. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works lest any man should boast. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. What isn't of yourselves? Faith. Salvation. None of it's of ourselves. It's all a gift of God. God is the one that grants repentance and faith and life in Christ. But God in his mercy and kindness in Christ tells us if we repent, if we return to him, he will return to us. He's talking about being reconciled to God, being received back into God's good favor and being received back into fellowship and communion with him. That, that is as true for the unbeliever who, and the unrepentant who needs to repent and, and come to Christ for salvation as it is for the backslidden believer who needs to come back to God and have fellowship with him again. God offers that. That's what God says he will do if we turn back to him in genuine repentance and faith. There could be nothing greater or more important than that, to have communion with God 
uh, have the blessing and smile of God upon us uh, by turning back to God. It, that is a foretaste of heaven. To be reconciled to God, to be uh, in communion with God, in unbroken fellowship with him through faith in Christ. Let's, let's pray.